There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Crime and Nourishment. In the previous episode, we heard about the groundbreaking research demonstrating the dramatic effect of nutrition on violence and aggression in prisons, and how the Home Office has been aware of this research for nearly 20 years. However, this is not the only evidence for the essential role of food and nutrition on brain function, mental health, and behavior. To understand more about how food affects the brain, I wanted to speak to scientists working in different fields of psychological research. Professor Dr. Su-Yung Park is head of the Department of Decision Neuroscience and Nutrition and joint professor of Charité University Hospital Berlin and the German Institute of Human Nutrition. She and her team have conducted some fascinating studies showing that the composition of your last meal can have significant effects on your social decision-making. Your work is broadly in decision-making and what influences decisions. So how did you get into decision work? I think my um, aim was to change decisions and to optimize decisions. And then I came up with the idea, okay, I need to understand decisions, how they emerge and uh, how to, to be able to use this mechanism to actually um, change decisions. So it kind of started from the back. Um, okay, I would like to change and optimize decisions. I started um, the scientific career with the fear change, uh, how to change fear and also how to change um, decisions made by addicts, alcoholic participants, for example. Mm-hmm. And there was an urgent need to change it. The fear change work was done in animals, and that's how everything started, and um, um, that's also how how I entered the field of nutrition. Fear of pain, for example, not pain per se, but the idea of you might get some pain induces automatically kind of fear affection, and um, that you could change it. Fears actually and pain are very interesting concepts because on one hand, they're very objective, um, but on the other hand, you can very often measure them biologically, but on the other hand, you can modulate them uh, quite well with psychological variation. Um, For example, a very nice example of this is placebo effect, for example. so I, I was quite fascinated at how you could um, target it to change the fear. And some of the work we're still doing, we're still working on it. Mm-hmm. And, and what did you find out about the psychological factors that have affect fear? 
Um, for example, that fear interacts with reward. So um, it, fear is not, it's not, um, yeah, or another very important effect of fear is um, the expectation of fear. Mm -hmm. You can manipulate it because the expectation exists only, um, it is uh, emerging only in your brain. There's nothing happened that induces that fear, but just the mere imagination or expectancy would uh, induce it. So you can actually work on that level mm -hmm. um, to change the expectation and uh, to change the, the eventual um, actually perceived fear as well. Mm. And does that have an effect on recovery from the fearful experience as well the level of expectation yeah exactly how to forget the fear or also how people um, i mean fear also means a, a certain type of uncertainty it is a kind of a risk right that people do not like to uh, encounter but it can help people to overcome it uh, to uh, achieve much bigger goal for example mm -hmm. to decide to go for fear because they know uh, it is beneficial for them at the end. And what about alcohol? What kinds of decisions were you interested in shifting in people who were alcohol dependent? Right. So um, it is fascinating if you talk to the patients. Um, it is heartbreaking because they, many of them are aware of their disease. Many of them are also aware that it's ruining their life. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their family because of alcohol. And still it is impossible to, um, to, to stop it. And um, so it, it seems to be that they're aware of the consequences of their decision, but they just simply cannot guide their behavior in accordance with the consequences. And this is what started to fascinate me. How can you behave differently? To be honest, we do it all the time, but not in <laughs> such an exhaustive <laughs> form. Um, and, um, and that's how I started to investigate, for example, learning behavior in, um, in, in those patients and how do they implement, how can they use what they have learned to uh, optimally guide their decisions. And um, yeah, those kind of work we did. At the, end, um, at the end of the day, what we found is that they, um, they can learn. They also know about the consequences. It, is, uh, it seems to be more the behavioral part that, that they cannot um, use this information to guide their behavior. They have all the information. It just this, uh, the last link is missing. And uh, we could also show this on the brain level um, that the learned uh, information via subcortical regions are they're not being projected further at the end to the prefrontal regions, which also um, goes in along with uh, yeah, the decision-making problems and symptoms and so on. You mentioned before, I think I kind of slightly took you off on a tangent, that the work in fear in animals was associated with nutrition, or that's how it got you into nutrition. What did you mean by that? Well, as I told you, my initial interest is in changing decisions. Uh, and um, this is how, how it got me to the field of nutrition, actually, because I started to view... Um, for example, there are also theories that um, obesity might be uh, have might have uh, similar mechanisms um, as addiction. For example, you have this impulsive behavior. You also have this um, thoughts that repeat and um, all the others and. Uh, Uncontrolled, uh, un uncontrolled eating, for example, is also very typical behavior. But if you turn the tables, um, 
I was thinking, well, you know, we eat every day and three times a day. And it is actually, if you think about it, there's two, um, two things a body or a human does to, um, that is invasive to your body. One is eating and the other one is breathing. So um, if you need to adapt to your environment more fast, um, you should be eating from this environment to get your body adapted to this. And so maybe we might be influencing our body without knowing by food. So food might be something like pills in the natural sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we want to change our decisions permanently, maybe the food is the, the core uh, where we need to start to change. Mm -hmm. um, and this is how I got into the field of nutrition and food intake. And um, yeah, ever since I'm absolutely in love with the field. <laughs> <laughs> so what were your first experiments looking at nutrition and decision making? So the, um, we did two things. The, the very first thing was, um, first of all, I encountered so much skepticism. And uh, so I, I was just simply um, telling people my ideas and maybe we could investigate this. And I was searching for collaborators and uh, learning about all this stuff. And whomever I was talking to, they were like, so young, this is not going to work. The, the effects are going to be minor. Because even if you give them pills, sometimes you don't see an effect. Why would you expect that such a small change um, induced by nutrition might have such a dramatic effect? And I was like, well, you know, it's an empirical question. Let's see what the answer is. <clears throat> and um, th then I started to see a lot of literatures pointing to that. Um, so one of the initial studies I did was actually asking people whether they believe that it might change their decision. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was confirming uh, my observation that most of the people said no. They do believe that it, uh, it changes their health and body, but they did not believe that it would have an impact on your decisions and thoughts because it, it's kind of holy. You're so rational and I have philosophical thoughts mm -hmm. and how could this be changed by such a basic and primitive thing like food? And uh, they were partly also quite offended. So. Okay, and then um, the first uh, empirical evidence we had was uh, by this um, study we did in collaboration with the University of Lübeck um, in, in a sense of that uh, we um, wanted to investigate the effect of glucose, plasma glucose on decisions. So I'm a psychologist and in the field of psychology there has been this long lasting idea of ego depletion. Mm -hmm. The idea is your brain uh, to be able to properly function, it needs fuel and glucose is kind of fuel for the brain. Mm -hmm. So if you have enough fuel, then you might be also able to exert more self-control and um, be more patient and more rational, for example, whereas uh, with, a, with a, a lower level of glucose, you might not be able to do this. But then I, I realized that nobody has really... Um, causally regulated down the glucose level and then observe the change. So this is what we did. We put them into hypoglycemic state 
uh, with a lot of insulin and uh, and then ask them to uh, perform a self-control uh, task and then we put the, we did the same thing with the same participant on a euglycemic uh, state where they had enough glucose and asked them to do and the fascinating thing was we did not observe any change so this did not have an impact and there was uh, inter-individual differences in self-controllability but neither in lean uh, pay participants uh, also in obese we did not see any changes mm -hmm. so it seemed to be that uh, um, glucose itself does not impact um, uh, the, our way of decisions mm -hmm. and then we moved on and encountered a series of uh, studies conducted in the 60s and 70s um, and what these studies show is that um, there is uh, in your blood amino acids, certain amino acids, which are precursors of neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. The neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, um, they are being made out of uh, tryptophan or tyrosine that can be found in the blood. And we, we get to these precursors by our nutrition. So if you eat more protein, you have a higher level of tyrosine, for example. Whereas if you eat more carb, then you would have higher level of tryptophan. And that this change in the blood also predicts how much you, uh, of this neurotransmitter you have in the brain. Yeah? But what nobody has tried to do is to change the food and then look at the blood, look at the brain, and then look at the behavior. Mm -hmm. Right, so this entire chain of action has never been investigated before, and I thought, okay, if the glucose is not the proper candidate, maybe this is the next candidate because those neurotransmitters play a key role in different function in our cognition. Neurotransmitters are the brain's chemical signalers. They are multitaskers, but broadly, dopamine is associated with reward and goal-driven behavior, and serotonin in the brain is associated with good mood. Dopamine is made from tyrosine, which is found in high-protein foods like poultry, fish and dairy. Serotonin is synthesized from tryptophan, which though it also comes from protein foods, is helped into the brain when we eat carbohydrate-rich foods. I don't know if I want to take you off track. Yes, I'm going to step back just to where you said um, about the scepticism, and I think you raised a really interesting set of questions. The first one for me is, isn't it extraordinary how it's, we can very easily accept that alcohol, which is a nutritive substance, can have an effect on our decision-making. Yet the idea that food, which we consume much more frequently in much higher quantities, won't. Coming from your alcohol research to nutrition research, how did that new scepticism affect you? What, what did you make of that? What do you mean with new scepticism? Well, so I'm, I'm guessing that people weren't sceptical of, of the idea that alcohol was affecting decision-making, so that they were kind of accepting of your results or your que questions in that area. And then you say, oh, well, let me have a look at food, and suddenly there's this doubt about your empirical question. You know, what was that shift like? Right. Well, I was... You know, if you do those kind of research, you consider it as some as a modulator. You don't think you don't you're not affectionate about it. You just look at it and uh, try to understand well, what are the steps, what how is the process going on. But then uh, encountering such an emotional response from the people, of course, surprised me, and it was also kind of okay. Let's see if you think 
alcohol impacts your decision, it must be in a negative way. So then it's easy to control it. I don't drink alcohol when I'm not, uh, make, uh, when I'm supposed to make important decisions, which everybody should try to do. Um, however, if we talk about food, um, then it gets really messy and complex because many people have hard time to understand what is a healthy um, food intake recommendation. There's so many different opinions. And if I start to think about, oh, my decision might be depending on my food, um, I think that this kind of big uncertainty starts to um, yeah, make you yourself to become hesitant mm -hmm. um, and then it's a, like a big black box that people do not want to think about and to want to want to believe uh, kind of thing mm -hmm. and the I think the other thing is that uh, food intake is highly highly emotional um, thing that um, it's not simply uh, calorie kilocalorie intake it, it, a lot more it's uh, like value I was once talking about how eating carb might have an impact and then they were like what is carb what do you understand carb and I was talking about, yeah it's like rice and uh, noodles and you know even yeah, the more it's processed uh, the, the easier it is being absorbed and, and then people would say so are you trying to tell me that the milk rice that my mom used to make to me when I was a kid, it was not oh. a good idea? You know, so this kind of blink, so they don't just think mm. it's ice or carb, but they start to think, what does it, it mean for me? And I loved it when I ate it. And now she's coming and telling me I shouldn't eat this. So it's mm. highly complex and emotional topic, yeah. Mm. <laughs> but you're kind of you're almost like the big bad wolf coming to take away these lovely warm memories of food absolutely yeah yeah and oh. that's also not the role i i, sh I should be taking i don't want to take the <laughs> <laughs> no, no you just want to do some research you just want to have a um I, th I thought you always make a, a very good point um about the idea that food is primitive um mm -hmm. or considered primitive and that there's a kind of of human arrogance you know we think we're so clever we think we're so highly evolved and that we're not like those other animals um, who are affected by these lesser things um, you know and I've certainly I've had I've literally had that conversation with someone who refused I mean he was denying evolution but on the grounds that um, he was like but we just I just don't see it I just don't see that we're similar to other primates and that was, it seemed to be coming from a position of, I don't want to consider myself to be animalistic mm -hmm. in that way or primitive or, um, you know, not as highly evolved as I am. And so, yes, I think what, what you touch on then is this kind of fear that if I can be so affected without my knowledge, because we know when we're drunk, we have a sense, or maybe I'm a bit tipsy and you know, maybe I have a bit of insight into that. But um, if I can be affected without my knowledge by something as innocuous as whether I had bread or cheese for breakfast, what does that mean about my autonomy, my self-control, my will, my, you know, my rational mind? Um, I guess it does become very threatening to one's sense of Absolutely. self. So tell me about that research that destroyed people's self. <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, from a, a scientist kind of view, you try to make a, a research that is as clean as possible. You don't think about all those emotional stuff, but you just think about, okay, I want to understand this chain of action, how nutrition changes your blood uh, parameters, and then it changes your brain function, and eventually you may uh, decide differently in the course of the day. This is fascinating. And um, one of the ideas to make a very clean hypothesis was to choose an outcome, so a readout at the end, that has nothing to do with food intake. So that's why we came up with the social decision-making paradigm, because if I would give you an egg to eat in the morning for breakfast, and then in the evening you... Um, uh, or in the, for lunch, then I, I ask you, would you want to have more eggs? You know, they would be quite obvious what, we, what we're doing. And so um, <laughs> we were searching for a, a task, a paradigm that um, is dopamine dependent because we knew if we give them more protein, that would increase their, they would change their dopamine function in the brain. Um, and then we came up with the social decision-making paradigm, the ultimatum game in which we can investigate how um, people respond to unfair offers. Um, and uh, we, what we did is we invited the same person twice into the lab and um, they, um, uh, they did undergo, um, uh, they did uh, eat two different breakfasts. The ones they uh, received a high carb breakfast and the other time high protein breakfast. And then uh, we, uh, we were observing the blood parameters and a couple of hours later, um, we asked them to perform the social decision-making task. And the results were uh, striking. We could observe indeed that people um, were much more tolerant towards an unfair offer when they had more protein. And this was very precisely predicted by the um, changes in, uh, in amino acid in the blood. So uh, we could even link uh, for people who change a lot of their amino acid uh, parameter in the blood. They also showed a big change in their decision making, whereas for the people who changed only a minimal uh, blood parameter, they also showed a little bit of uh, um, decision-making changes. So this was a very fascinating. And uh, of course, we were very skeptical on our own because it turned out to work, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did is we did a second study in which we um, simply asked people in the morning to uh, report us what they ate at home. So we didn't even invite them to the lab, but they had to very precisely document what they ate. And then they had to perform the, the social decision-making task and we could replicate our finding in the field, um, what we observed in the, in the laboratory. For people who aren't familiar with the ultimatum game, can you describe what they were asked to do? Right. So they, um, they're told that they're playing against someone else. So they're always two players. And, um, you know, like you and me, we are playing together. And you're given money from the experimenter, let's say 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I know what you're getting. And you can share some of it with me if you want to. You don't have to. And how much you share this money doesn't matter. So the interesting uh, thing about this paradigm is most of the people share in a fair way, that they were like four to six or five to five or six to four. And um, the, I'm the recipient and I can either accept the money that I get 
Like if it were five to five, I would be happy to accept it. But sometimes you might share only with me one to nine. So you get nine and I get one. This is quite unfair for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I can reject it. So rejection means I don't get the money. I don't get my one pound, but also you're not getting your nine pounds. So I'm kind of punishing you for the unfair sharing behavior. And uh, what I'm talking about when I talk about tolerance is people would be willing to accept, even if it is unfair offer, they would be fine, much more fine with it. Whereas if they have, um, become more sensitive about this and they would uh, reject an offer, even if it's seven to three or, you know, it's going more to the fair direction. So um, this was what we actually initially did with this idea of amino acids that is being changed by nutrition and that impacts brain and the behavior. So what they found using the sharing game was that people who had a high protein meal and who had higher levels of tyrosine in their blood were more likely to put up with an unfair offer. Conversely, when people had a higher carbohydrate meal and had more tryptophan in their blood, they were more likely to punish unfair offers by refusing them, leaving both players with nothing. But why would the balance of protein to carbohydrates have an effect on how we make social decisions. Here's one theory. The funny thing was when we published this, uh, we were kind of uh, bombed by so many um, other scientists from a different field. So they were from evolution science and anthropologists, and they were asking us the same question again and again. Why should nutrition ever impact social decision-making? This, you know, do you guys know? And if, to be honest, I told you, we just tried to make a clean and lovely design. Um, and uh, I was fascinated to listen to them, um, which idea they came up with. Is, so one of the um, nice ideas is that when we were living as a gather and hunter, uh, we would uh, uh, the food would come in, uh, which is which is high load of protein. And since they go hunting together and they get a game, um, there was a much more higher press uh, to share the food, to mm-hmm. share the game. Otherwise, it would go, go bad. So it was very common to share the food. And then it, it didn't also really matter if your neighbor is having a more bite or not. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, when we started to settle down and grow crops and live as farmers, food would be high in higher, much higher load in carb. And also that's when the mankind started to think about own property mm-hmm. and social norms. So like thefts was really threatening because once uh, they um, take away your winter storage, you might starve to death. So um, it would be punished very harshly, such unfair behavior that they chop off your hands or uh, with a really severe, uh, socially severe punishment. So a possible evolutionary explanation for this finding is that nutrition is a signal to the body and the brain about the conditions in the environment. And without the individual's knowledge, there are shifts in decision-making based on that environmental information. When there's scarcity, something is better than nothing. You, know, you say, fine, I'll take the one pound or I'll take that one little piece of rabbit leg or whatever it might have been because I need, I need something. But when 
when we're safer, when we're more secure, when food is more abundant, when we're staying in one place, then actually I need to be much more sensitive. And also what we know about kind of social living is that reciprocity becomes much more important, that we need to keep a dampener on our innate aggression you know we need to be able to cooperate and work together and you know I'll help build your house and you help build mine and and so reciprocity and cooperation becomes much more important and and perhaps that gives a a bit more of the context for why um meanness or unfairness becomes much more risky for individuals and as for the group as a whole if there was something that you would like the public to know or understand or just think about in terms of the impact of nutrients nutrition and food on the brain what what would it be well i told you at the beginning that many people might be scared about this thought that uh, nutrition changes your brain on the other hand it is a lovely tool you can also observe it as a lovely tool to optimize your decisions um just you know to be open-minded about this and um this would also, I, I guess, have an impact on how we view food, because then it's not just simply something that makes you feel, to feel um, so tired, mm-hmm. but it is something um, that changes you, your mind. Mm-hmm. And then I, I can imagine that people might uh, become a lot more aware of what they're eating, how are they eating, and, uh, and so on and so forth. This is a fascinating exploration of the role of food on brain and behaviour, which is still in its very early stages. It will be very interesting to hear what else comes out of Professor Park's lab in the future. However, along with the prison studies, there is another area of nutrition and brain function that is very well established, and that's the role of nutrients in the stress response. Stress increases the production of neurotransmitters and hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline, which on top of the normal activity of the brain, increases the nutrient demand. One psychologist has been conducting research into the role of nutrients in the prevention of PTSD, which in the middle of a global pandemic, could be an important tool in protecting public health. To find out more about this, I sat down to a video conference with Professor Julia Rutledge, whom I met some months earlier at an international research conference. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Professor Rutledge is director of the Mental Health and Nutrition Research Group at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand in the School of Psychology, Speech and Hearing. In 2012, her group published a randomised control trial demonstrating that a broad-spectrum nutritional supplement protected against excessive stress following the 2011 earthquakes in New Zealand. And she's since given a TEDx talk describing her research. So I did my training in clinical psychology in the 1990s um, at the University of Calgary, and that's going to be an important piece of the story that I will tell you later about the nutrition aspect of my research. But I had a very traditional training in clinical psychology, probably maybe like what you got in the UK, uh, where I was um, very much taught about medications, of course, and how important they, what the important role that they play in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. And then uh, as a psychologist, learning about cognitive behavior therapy, as well as other types of therapies uh, to help treat people who are struggling with a lot of psychiatric issues. Around the time that I was doing my PhD, my PhD supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, was, had been approached by some families from Alberta who had um, experienced the effects of nutrition on their own children. And by that, I mean they had, they had children in their families who were struggling with a lot of mental health issues like bipolar disorder, uh, psychosis, depression, really severe, severe illnesses that um, had been treated with conventional treatments, your medications, um, many, many, many different medications. They tried everything. These, um, one of the children had been in and out of the hospital out of psychiatric care um, and was getting more and more debilitated by her condition and medications simply weren't helping. So one of these, um, you know, to their, their names are Tony and David. And David had a background in animal nutrition. And he, uh, he said, well, I don't know anything about this, this bipolar thing that, you know, that Tony was struggling with with his kids. But, but it kind of sounds, when you describe it to me, it sounds like what I would see in animals that are malnourished. And they, um, particularly pigs, they bite each other's, um, you know, tails and their ears. And they're very irritable. And What's very well known in the animal literature is that if you give them a broad spectrum of nutrients, not any specific one like magnesium or iron or anything like that, but you give them a broad spectrum of nutrients, you put that into their feed, it, rem it normalizes their behavior and they stop biting each other. And it's, and it's, got, a it's got a name and I always forget. It's like ear and, it's like ear, um, ear and tail biting syndrome or something like that. So they decided to, they, they felt they had nothing to lose and let's apply this idea to their children. And that, that's their story. Mm -hmm. And they, um, so they slowly weaned a, a couple of the children off of their psychiatric medications and, and tried using nutrients instead to treat their condition. And, and they found a really... Sorry, was it a group of families or is this one family with several children? It's two, it's, it's, it's two families, um, mm -hmm. 
one of the, so, but it was Tony who, who, um, Tony's wife, I mean, the, the background is that Tony's wife had, had uh, bipolar disorder and had committed suicide and her father had committed suicide. So, and then, so he was left with children who were going down that same trajectory and he, he saw the train wreck coming and he, he didn't know what to do, but he ended up talking with David, who didn't have any background in psychiatry or anything like that, but just listened to the description of the behavior and said, you know, that's what it sounds like what we see in animals. So um, an interesting story and uh, interesting background story, uh, but it's an important piece because they are very, very different. Uh, they're... Their motives of their companies are very different from any other company I've ever come across in my world of working in the supplement uh, industry. So, and that's an, that's important. And I interrupted but, you when you were about to say what they found when they started supplementing. Oh, so so they they um, their the children's behavior got better. I mean, it wasn't a it wasn't a miracle. It would have been over quite a few weeks that they titrated them off of their psychiatric medications, and um, perhaps that in itself might have been helpful. Uh, but uh, for some people, because they 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 do um, you know sometimes those medications can get worse, you know, or end up with more severe side effects than the benefits that you're experiencing. So there are some challenges associated with some of the medications for. Some some people, but they they um, titrated them over to the nutrients, and and these kids got well, and their, their bipolar disorder symptoms went away, and um, they were in a place where they could function again, and parent again, and work again. So they 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 lived in a re- they live in a really small community in Alberta, and they um, in southern Alberta, and. The word spread that there were these kids who were doing well on nutrients. And so they, I think they, the story is that they were just simply making this or grinding it or, or maybe they were buying mineral suspensions or I, I, liquid you know, mineral suspensions. Whatever they were doing, they shared it with whoever asked for it. And so they ended up doing their best to track the progress of these people in their community who were using nutrients to try to uh, resolve mental health issues. And they collected data as best as they could. They're not scientists, but they did their best. And so they, they reached a point where they felt that they were observing something important. And so they started to approach scientists in their community to tell them about this discovery. And one of the scientists that they approached was Bonnie Kaplan, my PhD supervisor. Towards the end of my PhD, Bonnie was telling me about how she'd been approached by these families. She initially told them to take their snake oil and go elsewhere. I mean, that was her first reaction. Um, But they sent her their data, the data that they were, and showing the reduction of symptoms. And she's... What she's always taught me um, and what I try to teach my graduate students is that you can be skeptical, but please be curious. So, um, and that's important. That is so important because the number of times I come across people who are skeptical but closed-minded means that they don't ever open up their eyes to the opportunity that you might go down a rabbit hole and it may be very fruitful. Mm Sometimes you might go down a rabbit hole and it's a dead end, but we scientists really need to be at least curious. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she was curious 
and ended up uh, running a very small open label trial. So putting people on these new this nutrient combination that they had um, sort of put together, and they she observed the same thing, which was benefit for people who had bipolar disorder with alongside a reduction in medication. And this was published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, which is a really good journal in the early part of the century. So in I think it was 2002. So um, so that's she was doing that while I was doing my postdoc, and then I moved to New Zealand in 2000. And I continued to along sort of the line of work that I was doing as part of my postdoc. And that was looking at sort of executive function and psychosocial functioning of adolescents with ADHD and learning disabilities. But I continued to um, listen to Bonnie's stories and and be intrigued. And by that point, I don't know how long it was after your training, but I go, you know, I went into the training all enthusiastic about these amazing treatments <laughs> and um, that they're going to solve the world, you know, you just have to give it to them and people will get better. And that's unfortunately not the case. Uh, there's, you know, if we look at the data, at best 50% get better. And of course, we know that we can't access all people who are struggling with mental health issues. Uh, you heard me speak about um, we, we simply can't train people quick, quickly enough to, to, uh, to reach the epidemic. Uh, our programs are too long. We don't train enough. They're very, you know, my program that I went through at the University of Calgary took four students a year. And yeah, I know. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And that's not that's not atypical for a PhD program to take maybe four to six students in any any given year. In New Zealand, we tra we train uh, more tw 12 to 14 students per year. But still, if you think about the enormity of the problem, and then you do the math, mm -hmm. you realize that we have a massive hole, and it's, you know, we call it the treatment gap, mm -hmm. which is where people are simply never going to get the services. So we do need to go and move beyond the one-to-one -one idea mm -hmm. and be more innovative in how we are approaching the mental health problem. It's not that we get rid of them. Of course not. They have a very important place, but they've, we need to appreciate the limitation associated with the one-to-one -one approach and that it's, it's just not feasible. It's not um, scalable. No. And it's not scalable. It's not reachable. So, yes, it, it's, it's important, but we really do need to be thinking way outside of that square. So... Um, and that's where I think nutrition plays such a pivotal role because we... It, it fits into a far greater reach if we could have that policy, you know, changes and and get the entire community on board about appreciating how important nutrition is. It takes a lot, I think, to shift someone with a kind of yeah. traditional training from that yeah. duality position of yeah. you know, therapy medication yeah. to the idea that something more general yeah. as well remember that the research that had been done that i'm the research i'm involved in is using uh nutrients in a pill form mm -hmm. so there we're not talking about diet manipulation at this stage so i haven't been involved in the diet manipulation so it was taking the entirety of the nutrients that we think are important the minerals and vitamins in particular that we think are important for brain function 
and putting them into a pill in a dose that is higher than you would typically get out of your diet. And if we, if you want me to go into why that is, I can. But the, so it was consuming quite a number of pills a day. At that stage, it was, um, I think they were doing a ridiculous numbers up to 32. It's now down to 12 a day, so four, three times a day. But in the early days, it was about how do you get these minerals in particular into a pill form, into a dose that can make a difference. A lot of the vitamin supplements out there are vitamins and they don't incorporate the minerals and, and the minerals are, are a key, probably a key piece as well um, that I think gets lost in a lot of the research that's been done, but we, you know, we can come back to that. But essentially, I was, I was seeing research that I knew was robust. I know Bonnie Kaplan. I, 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 you, know, you, you learn about a scientist and the rigor of a scientist when you spend your training with them. So while you're, it's, it's challenging your worldview, it was, I knew that, that it, it, what I was seeing was real. Like I was, she, she wasn't fabricating her data. She was just showing this is how it, what it is. And so you, from my perspective, it was, well, what do I have to lose? I might find out it doesn't work. And that's a good finding because people spend, we've, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. Let's find out whether or not there's any benefit to them. Or we find out that they're beneficial. And in which case we open up a huge opportunity of being able to help people get well. So I, I saw it that I wasn't, I was a win-win situation. And so again, going to the being curious, I was just curious. Well, let's put it to the test. Let's run some control trials and see where this takes me. So that's pretty much, that's the sort of the starting point. It was sort of in the, maybe um, 2005, 2006, it did take a while to get it off the ground. What I then learned was it was hard to get it through ethics. They were, they were not just skeptical, they wanted to shut it down. They didn't want to approve the research that I was putting forward to them. I just, I, I don't know if they think the floodgates are going to open, everyone's going to want good nutrition. They, do, they claim I don't have enough data. Um, and I've got 10 years of data. And it's not just me. I mean, you've got, there's the, you know, there are people completely independent of me. There's Bernard Gesch, who's done that work. There's Abzalberg, who's done the work with prisoners. There's, so there's the, the prison studies. There's Jim Adams, who is in the States, who has done several really well-controlled studies using nutrients for the treatment of autism. So it's, we're not alone. It's not just my lab, although my lab is probably um, one of the bigger ones in the world that is sort of dedicated um, it dedicated uh, all energy towards trying to bring the control trials uh, to the world. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it, and then there's the, all the B vitamin studies that have been done on stress. And those are, those have been done in Australia and the UK and on South Africa. So it, we are not alone. Um, it is, uh, a, there is a solid, robust data behind what we do. And, it 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 does it i i don't know what it takes mm. so i continue to seek that that miracle or tipping point that's going to happen and the it, the flood gates will open it i don't know i wondered what she thought would need to happen for people to acknowledge the importance of nutrition for mental health 
what will it take? Um, I, I'm not giving up. I've got, you know, a sign on my door that says that no is, you know, just a temporary inconvenience. Uh, so just to, to keep going. But it is, as you said, it, you know, the emotional toll can be huge. And there are days where I have wanted to give up. What do you think? I've kind of got two questions. Um, one is, what do you think is the low-hanging fruit in nutritional psychiatry? And relatedly, what frustrates you about more generally the way we treat mental illness? That's an interesting question. What's the low-hanging fruit? Because the low-hanging fruit, where do you start with that one? There, they're still big. They're still big, but they look so easy. You know, just it's just stop eating crab food. How is that? I know it's not a low hanging fruit. Um, but if we could, um, you get the community to shift from seeing, uh, really ultra processed food as not food, it's nutrient depleted. It's not providing the nutrients that your brain needs to function optimally. So if we could educate the public on that basic concept mm -hmm. that when you feed yourself, most of the nutrients are being used by your brain. And we aren't raised in a way to think about nutrition that way. We are, we tell children that the reason to eat your vegetables is to make your bones strong or your, you know, to grow and or have big muscles, but we don't tell them about how important it is for your brain function. And maybe because that doesn't sound very sexy to a kid, which is, you know, eat the, your vegetables and you'll be able to focus at school. <laughs> so what else can we do? Um, I mean, I, again, I guess I wouldn't say they're all nutrition related. They're going to be... They, there's going to be just the importance of the moving and the exercise and the just staying socially connected and having, you know, good relationships with other people. We know that goes a long way towards making people feel better. So there are solutions that are outside of the nutrition realm. Um, I'm just wondering if you can help me on this one around some low fruit, some low hanging fruit. Um, I guess I had talked about nudging and some of those uh, sort of nudging type approaches of just how do you get some very basic message messages out there about the importance of nutrition for your, your, your brain. Um, I think so. And, I think yeah. one of the, the big challenges with any kind of public health messaging, isn't it? It's about, actually you need, we need to convey the idea that it's relevant, that it's attractive and interesting, but also that it's easy, you know, that it, let's yeah. try and make this as simple yeah. as possible. Easy. For you. Exactly. Easy, relevant. Yeah. I agree with you um, on that front. And that's why it's, I suppose it does take a change though. From the beginning, pregnancy is perhaps where people are motivated mm -hmm. uh, to to make changes because they suddenly realize that their decisions are affecting someone else, and and that could be a, a very fruitful place to target is uh, making sure that women are eating well in the pregnancy because the data is already fairly clear that yeah. the more you eat a Western style diet, then the greater the risk there is to your offspring for having mental health issues as well as other problems. So. Mm -hmm. 
that's a place where I think we have opportunity for change because women are in a head, hopefully most women are in a headspace where they can think about it that way. Um, and, and you got to get it, and it's important to get it, try and get it right. Because once you've laid down those neural connections, then you're doing repair as opposed to, um, you know, normal, uh, brain development or, or promoting or supporting normal brain development Mm -hmm. and repair is much harder. Um, and then getting the food messages in schools and getting them to learn how to cook. And, and that is happening. There are those changes that are happening in schools where they've got their school vegetable gardens and, and they're learning about sustainability. And, and it's, it does certainly contribute towards the whole message about climate change as well, about how important it is to, to eat locally. Let's not import our oranges from you know, Africa. Let's eat vegetables that we grow within our own city, our, our own space. So that's, I think, a really important piece of the school curriculum would be around changing, you know, our attitudes toward food and, uh, and understanding them. Now we have the knowledge and the kind of burgeoning literature demonstrating now the impact of, let's say, a very Western diet on on our health. But, you know, we, 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 yeah. we're very clear about it in terms of our physical health and diabetes risk and, right. you know, cardiovascular d- disease risk and it's, it's very, very clear. And there's just, there's this kind of missing piece about getting people to understand that your brain is an organ and yeah, in the same exactly. way requires yeah. nutrients and exercise and all of those other lifestyle factors in order to exactly. function optimally. Um, and, and we might be at a, that we might be at a point where that message uh, might be heard because there's been so much focus on the mental health crisis. Mm. And so uh, if that uh, story can be linked to the mental health crisis and can be connected, then maybe we can have some impact around getting people to understand how important nutrition is. What would you want? Let's say we've got a health minister listening or someone in a position of policy authority, what would you want to make clear to them or for them to understand? Yeah, I, I want them to be open to a very old idea, which is that nutrition is relevant to our entire uh, health. It's relevant to our physical health and it's relevant to our mental health. And that if we continue to ignore it, we are going to continue to have a mental health crisis that is not going to go away because it's such an integral component, not the only component, but it is such an integral component of the solution that to ignore it will be at our peril. And that all of the data are all pointing at the importance of nutrition. Whether you look at the epidemiological studies, which are the big population studies that show that the Western diet is associated with poor mental health and that the Mediterranean diet is associated with good mental health, or the prospective studies, or the controlled dietary studies that came out with you know, the SMALS trial or the Healthy Med trial that show you can manipulate diet. You then look at the research that we've been involved in, that we've talked about, the supplementation research also points to the importance of nutrition. So all of it together is an absolutely rock solid, robust uh, body of literature that to continue to ignore it is going to mean that we are going to continue to struggle with mental health issues in our community. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening. In the final episode of this series, I'll be speaking to some legal experts to try to understand why the UK government and judicial system has failed to integrate biological research into sentencing guidelines. I hope you'll join me then. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust. It was written and hosted by me, Kimberly Wilson, produced by Sarah Hashem, with music composed by Juan Iglesias. You can find full details of all episodes and contributors at kimberlywilson.co forward slash crime and nourishment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.